0: You're listening to Country Life with Keith Fahey on Galway Bay FM.
1: Good evening, I'm Keith Fahey and welcome to this week's edition of Country Life. On the show this week we'll be talking to Joseph Dunphy, a Chagas grass tin uh, advisor. We'll be speaking to Neil McGurn, who's with the Lely Robotic Systems. And we'll be also speaking to Patty and Scott Johnson on, uh, on agriculture in Virginia. And also we'll have some of the, the MART reports from around the county. So we also have Jack Coppinger, um, who's with us here in Chagas uh, in Athenry, uh, covering some um, uh, placement at the moment. So we're delighted to have Jack. And Jack is going to to give us some uh, mart reports there uh, from the different marts uh, around Galway there so we've gotten some summaries there so uh, Jack you might just give us a few of the prices there of cattle maybe and, and, and some of the sheep that were sold in, in around Galway in the last week or so.
2: So in the Mount Belieu Marsh cattle sale on Friday the 21st of April there's a smaller entry of cattle to previous weeks there's a strong trade for heavier lots and quality stores one of the sample price has been a Belgian Blue Cross cold Cow for 800kg she went for €2140 euro. Uh, Wayne and Heifer, a cemental cross went for 405 kg at €1110 euro. Uh, there's a cattle sale every Friday evening at 6pm gates are open at 4pm this Friday the 14th there's a special sale of store cattle Montpellier March sheep sale on the Saturday the 22nd of April. There was a large sale of sheep again this week. Stag yews mesh with a very brisk trade, especially for heavier lots. The small entries spring lambs also mesh with the strong trade, as did quality in heavier lots of hoggets. Very strong trade for yews at lamb at foot. Some sample prices of spring lambs. One spring lamb, 48.5 kg, went for 170 euro. 10 lambs, 48 kg, 165 euro. And then some price for hoggets 14 yew hoggets. 55.6 kg, 170 euro. Now for some stagios, a big sale of stagios, good trade for all lots, heavier lots in good demand. Five Yos went for eighty-eight kg at 142 euro. And that's all in my belly this week. Now just moving on to the tume uh, There's Uh steady trade at tume on Monday the twenty-fourth of April. Just some sample prices of cows. Uh blonde aquitaine cross went for 750 kg by a mile farmer, made 2,150 euro at about 2.87 kg. A Limousine cross cow m- went for 650 kg by a cloth farmer, which made 1,910 euro at about 2 euros 94 cent kilo. Uh, a Norbreck cross cow went for 500 kg by a badgerland farmer, which made 1,550 euro at about 3 euro and 10 cent per kg for some sample heifer prices. Uh, a Limousine heifer went for 475 kg by a farmer, which made €1,470 at about €3.13 kg. A uh, Charlie cross heifer went for 480 kg by a Hollymount farmer, which made about €1,580 at about €3.29 per kg. And finally, a limousine cross heifer went for 505 kg by Anna Hill farmer, which made €1,550, which went for €3.07 per kg. Now for some sample bullock prices. Uh, a Limousine Cross Bullock by band giant Farmer made 450kg at about €1,380 at €3.07kg, a pair of 550 kg Limousine crosses by an Abenaki My farmer made 1,750 euro, which is about three euro and eighteen cent per kg. And a Sharley cross bullock went for 675 kg by a mine farmer, which made 2,000 euro at about two euro and ninety six cent per kg. Now for some sample wainland heifer prices, which include a 305 kg Sharley cross wainland, which went for 880 euro by a Milah farmer. Which means two euros and eighty nine cents per kg for three hundred and fifty Kg a cross by Milo Farmer made one thousand one hundred thirty euro at about three euro twenty three cent per kg a pair of two hundred ninety kg Limousine cross uh, Wayne by by Valley Farmer made nine hundred sixty euro at three euro thirty one cent per kg a uh, Limousine cross Wayne went for three hundred twenty five kg by Valley Farmer which made one thousand euro and sixty euro which equates to about three euro and twenty six cent per kg and finally just some sample Wayland bull prices which include Charlie cross Cross Wayland Bull which went for 305kg by Bernard jerk Farm which made €970 euro at about €3.08 per kg. A sample Wayland Bull of sherry Cross by Miloff Farmer made 450kg at about €1,330 euro at €3.20 per kg. And finally a Limousine Cross went for 445kg by Hildwood Farmer which made €1,490 euro at €3.35 per kg. All eyes are set for next week's bank holiday cattle sale, which takes place next Monday the 1st of May at 11am, which will include a special entry of 18 cows with calves at foot.
1: So first up this evening we're delighted to have Joseph Dunphy as part of the Grass Tin, the Chagas Grass Tin program. Uh, Joseph you're very welcome onto Country Life. So firstly Joseph I suppose you're calling around to a lot of different farms, beef, sheep, uh, uh, dry stock, a lot of different farms at the moment. Maybe can you tell us a little bit about maybe how grazing is going on farms at the minute? You know we've seen a very uh, mild dry February you know followed by an extremely wet March and I suppose the, the first half maybe of April. Um, is there much grass on farms or is there, is there a massive variance out there?
0: Hello, Keith, and again um, good evening to all your listeners. Yeah, so as you said, it's been a very much an up and down sort of a, sort of a, a spring period. You know, good good conditions early on, good grazing conditions early on, and as you said, be it either beef or dairy or whatever, a lot of animals were turned out. Then you know a, a time of the year when we when we'd expect things to kick on. Then during March we had you know because you know heavy heavy wet weather and, and and cold weather as well at the same time, which which stunted things. So probably around the country, Keith, there's probably two scenarios. There's probably people on maybe drier ground that kind of kept grazing throughout. Uh, maybe that some of that wetter period, especially on the, on the on the on dairy farms, and you know they're. Probably in maybe tight for grass at the minute, or just kind of bang on for grass at the minute. And then there's other people maybe on heavier, on heavier, on heavier soils who had to house there for a two or three week period, and maybe were a little bit behind in fertilizer. Then after that, and there probably is a couple of heavy covers yet there to be grazed on farms that you know, depending on the situation and in individual farms, may be better put into a bale at this stage. But again, as I said, huge variation out there.
1: Okay, and you know. We're looking at maybe silage. Obviously, quality is, is a big issue every year. You know, for farmers to make quality silage, Joe, we're looking at, you know, harv- harvesting date of somewhere between the 20th to the 25th, maybe, of May for, you know, a good early cut there. You know, a lot of farmers may not have the fertiliser out yet, and maybe what advice are you giving to farmers in relation to this?
0: Well, I, as you said, Keith, um, you know, whether... Weather, uh huge uh huge obstacle there um over the last number of weeks but i suppose it's, it's important to to remember again that i suppose current fodder situations out on farms okay there may be some dry stock farms that have plenty but i was in a couple of yards there last week and two out of the three farmers were buying silage um so and i suppose declining fertilizer prices the aim should always be on every farm no matter what 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 it is to maximize the first cut of silage it's the most efficient time of the year you know, to maximize the response um, from the applied nitrogen you know, NP and K. So look at as you said, you know, we'd be targeting to have maybe slurry and, you know, topped up with maybe a nitrogen plus sulfur product there. Um have a total maybe of somewhere in around a hundred units on, so that'd be three thousand gallons of slurry and maybe you know two bags of protected urea plus sulphur. That'd be thirty eight plus seven, which would satisfy now that it would be as if we were spreading from a you know that'd be from an early early April spread, probably where we are now, Keith. If there's maybe only slurry gone out on those farms, you're probably talking. Um, and we'll get to the sulphur piece in a minute, but you'll probably be talking somewhere in around 50 units, if, you know, to top up a uh, uh, 50 units per acre to top up a paddock there or a silage field um, for the end of May. So maybe something like a bag of urea per acre or two bags of cut sword, the 24s um, would be, you know, products of choice there.
1: Okay, and you mentioned uh, sulfur there. I think it's a, you know, it's an element there that that is often maybe overlooked, or you know, um, doesn't maybe get the focus. You know, a lot of farmers ask us, uh, you know, regularly, and yourself as well, Joe, what fertilizer to buy. And in a lot of cases, you know, there is a good few farms maybe not spreading either enough sulfur or sulfur at all.
0: Yeah. And I suppose it's probably something historically, you know, um, it was kind of thought that sulfur deficiency was just maybe confined to parts of the southeast and to very light textured soils. But, you know, over the last few years, deficiencies are occurring and, you know, are, are, sorry, are, are occurring in you know, heavier soils and soils all over the country. It's not just in particular pockets of the south and southeast. Um, I think an issue, uh, uh, Keith, last year with the with the problems in the fertilizer trade you know a lot of straights were were i suppose were were in were in for you know in co ops yards and you know so you had an awful lot of straight 18612 straight urea straight can um and, and not an awful lot of them had sulfur but when we look at we look at um, you know some of the figures from it. Sulphur has a huge you know has huge advantages. Okay, so you know it can make make a difference of maybe somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent of a of a crop of first cut silage. So even you know fifteen or twenty units can make a huge difference. But also another big thing from it is that it increases the nitrogen efficiency for what nitrogen you've spread by twenty five percent. So it can take up you know maybe thirty kilos more nitrogen in from the soil into that grass plant and make it make a better use of it okay so from a grazing point of view it's important that we probably put on somewhere around 15 units so take say for instance um you know a farmer going out now to uh some of your listeners going out now to the co-op over the next couple of weeks to buy something for a grazing shake you know Try and get maybe if you're buying 18612, try and get 18612 plus sulfur. So I think it's in around 3% sulfur and spread maybe a bit of that over, over, the, over, the, then over the next number of weeks and come back again with a different product for you know later on in the year. From a silage point of view, we say somewhere in around 15 to 20 units per cut. So, again, that's why I suppose I mentioned earlier about that 38 uh, N plus 7 sulfur, 7% sulfur product uh, that protected urea, 38 plus 7. Because, you know, in general, if you're going with two bags of that to the acre, topping up a first cut of silage there back earlier in the year or later on in the year, you know, you're getting that 14, 15 units of sulfur um, with the two bags there. So it's very important, 15 units per grazing and 15 to 20 units for each cut of silage.
1: Yeah and as you said there Joseph like there's a massive increase there in nitrogen utilisation of 25% you know fertiliser is quite expensive obviously at the moment but you know the sulphur is obviously going to have a massive benefit uh, in relation to yields as well Um, so you know looking at other maybe uh, grass related issues uh, you know we have a lot of farmers there maybe that might be thinking of reseeding over the next couple of weeks and obviously you know now is the time as opposed to you know maybe later in the year uh, when we've missed a a fair chunk of the year Uh, look Looking at grass seed there, um, the different types of grass seeds, you know, look at the majority of farmers in Galway are probably averagely stocked in terms of dry stock or that, you know. Um, if we're looking at, we'd say, a uh, grass seed mix there where maybe someone might want to cut maybe one, uh, cut the silage once in it and maybe graze it for the rest of the year, we'd say for your averagely stocked um, dry stock farmer, you know, they're looking for the, the different types of grasses, maybe red clover, white clover. Uh, what advice are you giving in relation to this? Joe,
0: well, as I said keep it's, it's an important point, of time of the year, and you know, from a, from 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 Chagas, from our from our organisation, we would try and encourage as many people as possible to do that receding earlier in the year. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, it, you know, receding is left until the back end of the year, August and into September, and why that might make sense at one stage, it might be a slightly quieter time of the year on farms, they have time to do maybe a little bit of remedial works in paddocks. It's not ideal from. I suppose the physiology of that that plant growing because what we want to do really is we want to get that grass seed in earlier in the year. We want to take as many gradients off of it as possible to help the new grass plant tiller. And then we want to get post emergence spray on it in good growing conditions as well, which sometimes can be missed later on in the year. And again, as you know, as we said earlier, fertilizer is expensive, diesel is expensive, so con- so reseeding is an expensive you know, it's an expensive hobby at the minute to be honest. So if we uh if we um you know we don't get it right and we weeds burden coming back in or we get old grass coming back up in it again, then it's uh you know, it, we're not getting the best bang for our buck. So as we said, it's an expensive it's expensive thing to do at the minute. So if we can do it in the spring, it's uh you know, it's important. And I suppose look at from selecting varieties, you know, it's a, there's a there's a tool there the pasture profit index tool in, in Chagask, and it you know it selects varieties and it goes through all the department research um, on the individual tri- the individual traits and for you know the individual varieties that go into every bag of grass seed so I think it's important if you're in going to your local co-op or whatever to um, source a bag of grass seed it's important maybe take a picture of the leaf that's on the bag. And go back and have a quick look and Google the Pasture Profit Index and Google, you know, some of the work that's been done there and have a quick look at the varieties that you're going to use and that's in the bag of grass seed. Because sometimes the difference between a very good bag of grass seed and a bad bag of grass seed could be only €5. Euro. So there's a huge lot there. One thing from a silage point of view, what what if we're looking, say, for silage and maybe grazing, we want a variety that maybe there's, there's um, you know, there's a narrow heading date range between between the, the varieties that's in it, and you're probably looking at somewhere towards the, the, the 20th of May or 25th of May from a from a heading point of view. Um, when, we're, when we're selecting maybe some clovers, if it's particularly for a silage field, we may try and put in a large leaf clover in a, in a, in a, in a couple of kilos um, from, a, from a silage sward. If we're going for, we we'll call it red clover silage, okay, a, a specialized red clover silage, um, there is some off-the-shelf mixes there in co-ops, but they must be four kilos of red clover and maybe a largely um, white clover in that mix too. But they have to be four kilos of red clover, especially if you're getting into the the red clover scheme there this year.
1: Okay, and also you mentioned uh, a few a few minutes ago there about a fodder budget. You know, often at the maybe before the winter, we're looking and maybe advising farmers to um to do a fodder budget to make sure they have enough silage. But I suppose it's nearly more important to do it this time of the year, so farmers, you know, have an idea of what cattle they will be keeping for the winter and how many bales or pit silage or whatever, how much forage they actually need to make from now on.
0: Yeah, no, it's extremely important because um and it, you know as we said already. You know, put out your put out your, your NPK for first cut. Take a right good crop of first cut. Get the perfect balance of quality and tonnage that you need in the yard. So, you know, be it pit silage or, or bales, whatever you may need. And as you said, Keith, take stock of things then at the end of May, early June, and then you know then exactly what you need to go after. Whether you need to close up, you know, a part of the farm for for a second cut. Maybe you don't need to close up a part of the farm, or maybe you need to close up a you know ten or fifteen acres to, to you know to 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 make sure that you have a good reserve of feed because you know as I said you know there there isn't a huge surplus of feed in the country so it's important that you can that you have enough enough feed to feed your own animals inside your farm gate
1: uh, Joseph Dunphy from the Grass Tin Chagas program uh, thanks very much for coming on Country Life Country Life brought to you by your credit union
0: renovate your credit union is the foundation to your home renovations credit unions in Ireland are regulated by the central bank terms and conditions apply.
1: So next up we're delighted to have Scott and Patty Johnson all the way from Virginia in America uh, Scott and um, and Patty, you're very welcome onto Country Life uh, believe it or not you're the second um, people we've had on from Virginia we also had a John Benner there who's an agricultural extension officer whom uh, he put us in contact with uh, so you might tell us maybe a little bit about yourself you were running the, Car- uh, the Cunnamara Marathon you've been in the Burren, you've seen a few farms yesterday you were out with us in Chagas and we were delighted to have you out so you might tell us maybe where you're from and uh, what you do
3: yeah Keith thanks uh, for having us yesterday it was a really great tour we really really appreciated it enjoyed it very much Uh, yeah so Patty and I are uh, as you said uh, from Virginia what we call the Piedmont which is kind of the central um, portion uh, of Virginia between the Blue Ridge Mountains and the ocean Uh, so uh, really uh, beautiful uh area kind of rolling hills uh we we call them um we're we're in an area of fairly small uh farms um, compared to the rest of the country so uh, our average uh herd size is you know pretty small 20 or 30 animals uh there and a lot of farms are you know just 50 to 100 acres and then you've got some uh, big farms uh, as well, but it's a uh, fairly uh, choppy type uh, farming area, and uh, we've uh, we've done uh, pastured uh, beef cattle. Uh, we've done some cropping uh, off and on, corn and soybeans. Um, so it's a pretty diversified uh, area for agriculture.
1: Okay. Um, he also grow some tobacco over there. And while I was over there, we seen um a research center where there was a lot of um tobacco trials and and that done. Um, I think it's about four or five years ago since I was in Virginia, but uh, we seen where maybe a lot of farmers were growing tobacco for um Malboro and 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 other companies like that. Uh, you also used to grow some tobacco. Uh, a couple of years ago, Scott, you might maybe tell our listeners we'd be fairly uh. Uh, clueless in relation to growing tobacco here it's it's obviously not done in Ireland but uh, maybe you just might tell us a little bit of how it's grown and I think there was a sellout was there you mentioned yesterday uh, a couple of years ago from the government and the farmers or something like that
3: uh yeah Keith and I have to admit it's been uh it's been quite a few years uh probably 15-20 years which uh since the tobacco uh was bought out um that's uh Typically grown a little further south uh, in the state, and a lot of that is now um, moved down to uh, Georgia. Uh, Tobacco smoking is not near as popular uh, in the states as it used to be, so uh, certainly that market has fallen off some, and uh, a lot of people have switched uh, from tobacco to other uh, crops, or they've just incorporated their tobacco ground. Uh, into their crop rotations Uh, some folks went certainly went to cattle Um, and um, so yeah it's been a while but uh, I actually grew up in the state of Kentucky a little uh, further uh, west uh, from Virginia and grew tobacco from uh, the time I was uh, big enough to carry a tobacco stick uh, uh, until I went off to college and um, yeah, it's a, it's a very lucrative crop from the standpoint of what you can make off of it per acre. Um, so it was a great crop for us. We would only grow a few acres of it and, and do pretty well. Uh, you guys would love tobacco here in Ireland because it's a very labor-intensive crop. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's not a lot of mechanization uh, to tobacco even today. It's, it's very, very labor-intensive.
1: Okay, yeah, and just looking at some of the figures here in relation to Virginia, you've got a population of almost 8 million. So, like, you know, it's on, it's only one state in America, but you've, like, you've once and a half the population of Ireland.
3: Is it that many, Keith? i got to get out of there. That's too many
1: people. <laughs> you also grow peanuts. Um, it was a big, um, I suppose, agriculture, um, Scott and Patty, is probably is one of the biggest industries in uh, in Virginia, I presume.
3: Uh, yeah, I believe agriculture is the number one, um, cash crop, uh, in the state of Virginia or, you know, at uh, in, I don't know, economic, um, uh, industry, uh, in the state is still agriculture. I believe, uh, if you don't count the illegal crops, uh, like marijuana, uh, it's, it's the number one. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's big, uh kind of uh, uh, like ireland um obviously um you know uh we're starting to see a lot of um agritourism there too in conjunction with the uh folks coming in for uh you know going to the beach and Pike in and that
1: kind of thing. Okay, very good. And maybe you might tell us a little bit on, you know, how you sell cattle in America. You know, in Ireland here, we have marts or markets, as you call them over there, I think. Uh, you know, the cattle come into the ring and they're weighed and, you know, it goes on, obviously, euro... They they sell by by euro and obviously it's broken down. We'll say euros per uh, kilo. It's a lot different in America. You could have big um you know huge marts where a lot big bunches of cattle could come in together. And is it correct in saying that they're sold by by the pound dollars per pound?
3: Yes, that's correct. It's uh, by the pound, and um yes, our market uh marketing cattle in uh in the u.s um is very different now um it's changing pretty dramatically uh and and fairly quickly uh a lot of our local sale barns uh that used to work i would say very similar to what you guys are used to here are closing down so you used to have a local sale barn in every you know uh even some of the small communities but certainly your larger towns and cities all had sale barns. You could have multiple sale barns. Uh, and the cattle would come through um, mm-hmm. you know, individually or sometimes in matched groups, uh, and they would sell uh, by the pound. So a lot of times they sell your, um, what we call your stocker cattle first, um, and uh, then your mama cows might sell later on, uh, and fats typically uh, last if the fats even sell uh, at the sale barn. You don't see fats sold at the sale barn a lot because typically they go to the feedlots and the feedlots sort of have, you know, um, locked up relationships with the packers. Um, so you don't see a lot of fat cattle necessarily sold at the local sale barns. But that's changing a lot. Uh, cattle are being sold and direct marketed off the farms now in much larger groups uh, we're members of the central virginia cattlemen's association and the associations uh, group cattle uh, they'll put different farms together and group cattle by um, phenotype and weight uh, and um, sell them in, in large groups um, uh, a lot of times over the what we call a tele
4: yeah, the tele tele auction.
3: Tele auction. So the cattle don't even come to the barn; it's just sold over the TV, basically. So it's it's really changing a lot.
1: Okay, and Patty, you're you're well, you're both organized, but Patty, you're in, involved in the Virginia Forage Grassland Council as well. I suppose can you tell our listeners maybe a little bit about this? What what you do? Maybe I think you run events and stuff like that also
4: are associated with we're affiliated with virginia tech which is we have the land grant university system and what y'all you call chagas we call extension is is um is the organization that kind of connects farmers with the research and the universities So the Virginia Forage and Grassland Council was established with some university folks and some uh, on-the-ground extension folks and producers to to help us um, improve our grazing management. Hay and grasslands are an important part of Virginia. Aesthetically, you know, people like the looks of them. Um, Our crop ground, um, compared to the rest of the United States, We are ops, but we can't compete with the Midwest as far as cash crops, uh, corn and soybeans. So hay and and forage are our primary um, agricultural products. And the Virginia Forage and Grassland Council has some beginning farmers programs. We do um, fencing schools. We do uh, winter conference series and we have different groups come in. Sometimes it's more producer-oriented. Sometimes it's it's, uh, about helping farmers navigate some of the um, social issues that we see in farming, Um, public reaction to farming, public reaction to um, meat products, that kind of thing. And sometimes farmers, we may be good at farming, and we're not necessarily that good at communicating with the public, so sometimes we need a little bit of help with those sorts of things, and the Forage and Grassland Council kind of works in between the cattle producers and the um, some of the, the the residents and things like that to try to help each other understand what the process is with managing the environment using livestock as a land management tool. That's something we don't normally think about. That that the that too many cattle are a detriment to our land, but the right number of cattle is what our land needs to to, to remain healthy. So we try to do that. We work with um, with uh, nutritionists, human type nutritionists, dietitians to help them understand and for us to understand what the public needs from us sometimes because we're not always clear about that.
1: Okay, very interesting. And what breeds of cattle are you keeping over there or what's the predominant breed of cattle, we'd say, around your area there, um,
4: Patty? Yeah, we, we live in an area where it's predominantly Black Angus. Um, our area is historically tied to the restaurant industry on the on the East Coast. You had a lot of Herefords and some, some what we would call reindeer cattle that were in the west, and our eastern seaboard cattle tended to go north into, we called it the, the white, white tablecloth restaurants, so there was a, um, we were more about feeding cattle on the east coast, and so the Black Angus came uh, to the top of the list as kind of as an um, easily adaptable, marketable cattle and that's been that way for probably 40 years or so black angus has been the biggest breed we tend to get um we get paid a little bit better for raising a black calf um but that now uh within the last probably 15 or 20 years we've been trucking a lot of cattle out west uh we didn't have the road system literally did not have the road system Um, until the last 20 years or so so we are now trucking uh, truckloads of cattle out west so the feeders in the Midwest are not as adamant about having those black hided cattle but generally speaking the black Angus with the black hide is what's going to bring us the top dollar in our area
1: Okay, very good, very good. Uh, Patty and Scott Johnson uh, from Virginia. It was lovely to have you on Country Life and it was uh, great to meet you there yesterday. Um, I learned a lot about uh, American agriculture and how it varies from Irish agriculture. So it was lovely to meet you and uh, I appreciate your time coming on uh, Country Life with us.
4: Thank you for inviting us, Keith. We really appreciate it. We appreciate your time and we love sharing our story.
0: Country Life, brought to you by Your Credit Union. Cultivate. Providing farm-friendly finance across the west of Ireland. Credit unions in Ireland are regulated by the Central Bank. Terms and conditions apply.
1: So next up, we're delighted with Niall McGurn uh, from Lely. Uh, Niall, you're very welcome onto Country Life and thank you for uh, taking time out uh, to, to chat to us today about uh, robotics in uh, farming and how they can benefit us. Uh, so you might tell us maybe, Niall, a little bit about your role with Lely and maybe what you do and where you're based.
5: Thanks, Keith. Yeah, and thanks for having me. So um, the business is Lely Centre Mullingar. We're based out of Mullingar. We set up the business 11 years ago. Myself and my business partner, Alan Heaney. Alan's from Swinford and I'm from Roscommon, but the company is based out of Mullingar. So we're a team of 55 people. The majority of the staff are service and installation engineers. So what we generally do is, if someone is interested in farm automation or robotic milking, we would visit their farm, we check the farm and see if the farm suitable and we'd manage the client's expectations, see will the system do what they're looking to do. And if if that's the case, then we would generate a set of plans and give the client a good idea of where it would go and what the building costs would be. And we would map their uh, grazing block and show them how to organise the grazing infrastructure. And we installed the robots, commissioned the robots. We provide the service and support, and we have uh, a number of technical people then who will work with the client uh, during the transition. The majority of our customers will be uh, dairy farmers upgrading to uh, robotic milking, but we'll have a fair share of new entrants, people getting into milk for the first time. Um, that would be, that'd be the main bulk of our business, but we also do a lot of automatic calf feeders and robotic yard scrapers. But the big ticket ticket item, uh, Keith, will be the robotic milking systems.
1: Okay. Um you mentioned there about uh, grazing systems and grazing plans. Uh you run the A and B and A, B and C I think it's called um the grazing platform. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about that and how the two different differ?
5: Yeah. So um the majority of our customers will be spring calving grass based systems. So what an A B system basically means is the cows have two blocks a day. You're strip grazing. So they're giving the cows Whatever amount, just say that you your your herd needs two acres of grazing per day to fulfil their requirements. You're giving that in two blocks, so an acre at a time. So for 12 hours a day, the cows go in and out of the a paddock. Um, for example, some people call it the day paddock and the night paddock, but we'll call it the a paddock. So for 12 hours a day, the cows that travel in and out the robot, uh, they travel in if they want to get milk. You know, they have a burden of milk on the other that feel uncomfortable. So one reason they go in is they want to get milk. Another reason they may go into the yard to get milk is uh, to get a bit of feed in the robot, some nuts. Our clients generally aren't that heavy meal feeders if they're they're pure grass-based systems, but they do get a reward for going in. But eventually, the paddock will be grazed out because you've only given them maybe an acre, for example, or half an acre. So eventually, the paddock will be grazed out and the last few stragglers will go into the yard because they know, well, there's nothing left to eat here and I must go into the yard and through the system to get the fresh grass. So uh, an A-B system is a, a, a 12-hour paddock system. An A-B-C system is an eight-hour paddock system. In in the west of Ireland, we have a lot of clients who could be grazing by day and maybe in by night. They may have a fragmented farm or they may have a small grazing block. But what our advisors would do is when they're on farm, they sit down with the client, they look at what's there already, and then they decide uh, with the client, what system best fulfills the need that they have.
1: Okay, right. Very interesting. And in relation to the robots then, uh, there's a, obviously, you know, for some of our listeners, they may not be familiar with it, or some people may be tuning in to learn more about them today. Um, there's a, a load of information there, uh, Nile, in relation to, you know, cell count, yields, fats, proteins there. There's a, a lot of information that can be got on each individual cow.
5: Yeah, that's very true. It's, it's it's almost like having a vet milk your cows. Uh, not only are you saving four to five hours' labour a day, but you're getting great information on, on the health and the welfare and the performance of the cows. So every time a cow walks into the robot, her teeth are cleaned um, with, with brushes. It puts on the, uh, the cups. It milks every quarter individually, which existing dairy farmers love because there's no over-milking and there's no under-milking. After milking, the teeth cups are washed, and, and the teeth are sprayed with, with, with teeth dip, which is like a moisturiser and a disinfectant for the cows. Keeps the teeth healthy. But all the while, the milk is being analysed. So every time a cow is milked, not only do you have the yield of the cow, but you also have the quality of her milk. So you have her butterfat, her protein, uh, you have her, her cell count, which is a, a, a measure of, of the... Um, the hygiene of the milk Um, you have early indication of a lot of illness so the robot actually takes the temperature of the cow which is the temperature of the milk so it's a very good indicator to a farmer that a cow is sick Um, there's also every cow wears a collar around their neck it's like a Fitbit, so it's monitoring her activity and it's monitoring what we call rumination which is actually her cud chewing so all this information is downloaded very quickly after the cow walks in and the way it would work practically is if the cow is fine, she just is allowed out of the system and she's back out to the grazing block. But if there's an issue, if she's under the weather, she got um, maybe she's in heat or she's got a temperature or she's early signs of mastitis, she will be drafted to one side. So when the farmer comes back from doing whatever he was doing, the cow that needs attention is there in the pen in front of him so he can deal with her promptly and hopefully get on top of whatever the issue is and get the cow back uh, moving again.
1: Okay, and how reliable, uh, maybe, and efficient are the robots? Obviously, you know, labour is, is a massive issue, now on farms at mom, at the moment, and I suppose, you know, while maybe, you might tell us a bit in terms of energy usage, I presume, but I could be wrong, energy usage will obviously be higher in a robot, but then maybe the farmer uh, may have less labour uh, to manage if it's a thing the robot can do the work. Is that fair to say, or...?
5: It's a fair, yeah, a very fair comment. The, the official Chagas figure is that... Uh, Robotic milking system reduced the labour requirement on the farm by 36%. So I suppose a practical way of looking like that, it kind of brings seven days of work back to five days. Um, The robot would cost more to run than a very basic straight-line parlour with no technology on it. But the modern farmers putting in or upgrading their milking system, they're generally going for parlours that have technology. They're looking for feed-to-yield feeding systems, like the robot has a standard... They're looking for automatic drafting, they're looking for heat detection, health monitoring systems, they're looking for, for more advanced washing systems. So, compared to a modern parlor, one robot's the same as about an eight unit modern parlor, and two robots is the same as about a 20 unit modern parlor. So, for most people, our average customer will be putting in two robots that are milking maybe 120 to 130 cows. So, when they look at their costings, most of them are looking when they're doing their homework, they may be looking at, at a twenty-unit parlor, and the robots will compare very favorably in that situation.
1: Okay, and in relation to other sectors, we say you know you also have other um, products there, like you know your 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 mixer wagons or your I think the Lelly Vector, I think they're called. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, maybe bigger farms or maybe even bee farms could be using these ones.
5: It's not a big seller uh, for us. Like we're looking after Connaught and Leinster. So the Majority of our customers either have a robotic system or a robotic yard scraper or, or, or automatic calf feeder. But we do have um, a number of clients who have a robotic diet feeder, so they're generally indoor systems. Uh, so far, they've all been dairy farmers. We do have a number of uh, intensive beef farmers looking at it. But if you were to go north of the border into Northern Ireland or across continental Europe, robotic feeding and automatic feeding is a lot more developed. But the majority of our clients will be spring calving herds. So they wouldn't really have a requirement for, for, for automating the feeding system because you know the an, ambition is to have the cows in as little as possible and out. So ideally for 300 days a year, but majority of people will be getting around 250 days grazing.
1: Okay, and you mentioned the calf feeder there. Could you tell us a little bit more about this?
5: Yeah, so there's about 600 calf feeders installed. So it, it's oftentimes the first bit of um, farm automation a farmer might introduce. So what happens is, Keith, that the cow, the, the calf's ear tag is recognised, the electronic chip that's in her ear tag. So when the calf walks into the calf feeder, they normally put on the calf feeder for maybe four to six days, and they're on it for a couple of months generally. The calf walks in, so whatever amount of milk it is due at that time is mixed, fresh, the right concentration of powder and water at the right temperature and a suspense to the calves. So what you're trying to do is mimic what would happen if the calf was on a cow. So they can drink little and often and, and for a lot of farms, you know, that it's a huge labour saver. And in some instances, uh, you know, the calves can perform better. Not not always, if there's a lot of dairy farmers in fairness put huge effort into managing their calves, but but the automatic calf feeder allows you to do as good a job with an awful lot
1: less time. Okay. And you have the options there obviously as well, you know, to you know to you know, change your feed curve as well. Some farmers may wean at younger ages maybe or, you know, are given a set amount of litres per day or you can increase it at the start and maybe tailor it off then towards the end and maybe gradually wean them.
5: Yeah, no, that's very true and you can reduce an awful lot of stress. And look, you can feed heifers and bulls in different ways too. And, And some farmers, they feed whole milk to calves as well. So there's the opportunity to do that. So... Look, it, it gives you a lot of flexibility and it, it tells you if a calf is sick as well because normally if a calf is sick, it doesn't drink as much milk and the system will flag that up to you on an app on your phone that here's a calf and for whatever reason today, it isn't drinking as much milk as it normally does and it's a very good indicator to the farmer that here's a calf, I just need to check next time I'm down in the calf shed.
1: Okay, and can you tell us a bit about the automatic slurry scrapers as well, and maybe how they work? Are they programmed uh, for each yard, or do they have sensors, or how are they charged?
5: Yeah, so like that's that, that that is probably our biggest seller. There's over a, a thousand of those working now across our territory. So they're very similar to the robotic uh, lawnmowers if you've ever seen those. uh things. so the 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 way they work is you um it has like a set of eyes on either side or an ultrasound, so it's a bouncing a signal off a wall or off a, a, off a feed barrier or, or off the heel of a cubicle. So for all, in, there's two main options. So the standard option is like you going around the yard with a three-foot scraper for 10, 10, 12 hours a day. So it scrapes the manure into the slats and helps keep the floor clean, which means you have cleaner cows, cleaner cubicles, cleaner milk and generally less lameness if you have a drier floor and a cleaner floor the the um top end of the range is called the discovery collector and that's like a manure hoover so that goes around sucking up the muck and dumping it over the slats so that's more appropriate to a farm that has a lot of solid floors and maybe not as much slats and that's that's been very popular that's, that was launched four years ago and has been a uh, Selling very well, thankfully, and uh, it works really well on farms that are limited with the amount of slats they have.
1: Uh, so Niall uh, McGurn from Lelly, thanks very much for coming on Country Life. I think you know that some uh, brilliant information there. We've obviously advanced. You've obviously seen an awful lot of changes in the last uh, 10 to 12 years or since you've started uh, the, the company there in Mullingar.
5: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, well, We do a bit of travelling all around Europe, so you'd be very proud when you're at home and you're seeing the standard of production and how well guys look after um, you know their stock and ladies. So I suppose some of the big changes is um, we would do a lot of business with maybe more experienced dairy farmers who are looking to extend their career. Uh, people who've, you know, they've done their apprenticeship, they're running a good business. Uh, they may be showing a bit of wear and tear from many years of hard work and milking cows and they like the fact that if they can automate the milking system it can extend their career. About 30% of our customers will be um, working off farms. So actually, one of the first robots we sold back in 2012 was a teacher from Tubber Curry called uh, Shea Monaghan. So he's working as a teacher, but he also has a very good herd of dairy cows that he was uh, looking after with his dad. And as his dad stepped back, they wanted to keep the dairy herd going. So putting in the robotic milking system allowed uh, Shea to pursue his career, but also you know, keep the dairy herd working away. So a third of our customers, doing a, have an off-farm uh, enterprise, teachers, builders, childless advisors, department men, shopkeepers, all sorts of things. Um, another big change would be a a lot, a lot more ladies getting into management dairy farm, managing dairy farms. And it's actually great that there's a new TAMS grant of 60%. It should encourage that even more. Um, we would also have a very high market share in the new entrant market. Because the build requirement and a robotic milking system is an awful lot less than the traditional system. And the information the robots gave is very useful to new entrants who mightn't have the, the experience of, of dairy farming. So it helps them get to a higher standard of farming uh, a lot quicker. And obviously lower build costs helps make, make the whole enterprise a lot more affordable. So automation is growing. Our business is doubling every three years Um we're recruiting strongly for service engineers and, and, and technical people. And look, I, I see that trend continuing.
1: Niall, uh, we wish you all the best. And thanks very much for coming on Country Life. A lot of brilliant information there on robotics on farms and how, you know, can life can be made easier for farmers, um, you know, especially in an, in an industry where labour shortage is a massive issue. So thanks very much for coming on Country Life. So that's it this week from Country Life. We hope you enjoyed the show and if there are any queries about this week's topics or something like you'd like covered, uh, please don't hesitate to email me at countrylife at ie, and I'll get back to you and I'd like to thank Jack Cobbinger for the Merit Report uh, and I'd also like to thank Niall McGurn from Lely um, and Joe Dunphy from Chagas and also from, to Scott and Patty Johnson from Virginia. Uh, so that's it this week from Country Life. We hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, next up is Melodies followed by The Nightfly.